Please turn with me to your study outline. And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word, as well as uh, those friends of ours in Arco, Idaho, and Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad that you are joining us for our study today as well. Uh, We're starting a new series called All I Want for Christmas. And what we're going to do over the four Sundays of Advent that's going to culminate the fifth Sunday will be Christmas Day on the 25th. It falls on a Sunday. So we're going to have three Christmas Eve services, and then we're going to have one combined Christmas Day service on that Sunday. How fun is that going to be? And so it's going to be a great, great time. And so we'll culminate with the uh, lighting of the Christ Child candle in the middle on uh, December 25th. But leading up to it, uh, through Advent, we're going to take each of the Advent things. The high schoolers just lit the candle of joy, and we're going to deal with the others in the future, joy, peace, hope, love, Uh, and we're going to talk about something that happens to us around the Christmas season that we struggle with, and how by God's power, we want to replace that with something else. And by the study of his word, by biblical principles, and then the power of the Holy Spirit, applying those within our lives, Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the power of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so by God's power, by his word, we can replace each of these four things that we struggle with throughout the year, but particularly at Christmas time, we can replace those with other things. And so today we're talking about replacing discontentment, discontentment that we struggle with all the year, but I think particularly at Christmas time, to replace that with joy. Now, to set up the passage from Philippians chapter 4, I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. This is Paul giving an overview, kind of an autobiography of the low points of his life. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. This is called scourging. If you ever watch the movie, The Passion of the Christ, uh, even more horrible, if it's possible, than the crucifixion was the scourging of Jesus, where they would scourge you one less than 40 in order to, um, to keep you from dying. They would scourge you 39 times. It was horrific. They would tear the skin off of your back. You would come to the brink of dying, and then they would stop short, just short of killing you. Well, Well, that happened to Paul three times. I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. This means uh, stone to the point of death. They thought Paul was dead. Uh, And actually, he came back to life after being stoned to death. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And so he says that throughout his life, he had suffered in all these various ways. He had gone through these hard times. Now, With that backdrop in mind, now let's go to Philippians chapter 4, okay? I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concerns for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, whether it be scourging, beaten by rods, uh, shipwrecked, All these dangers he went through, whatever the circumstances, I have learned to be content. Verse 12, 
He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living on plenty or in want. And then that famous verse is verse 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Or in the old King James translation, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now normally, when we think of this verse, we apply it, I can do great things by the power of Christ that helps me to accomplish great things. And that's a good application. It's a, it's a great application. It's a perfectly good application. But in context, originally, what that verse means is, I can learn to be contented whether times are good or bad. Even during the bad times, I've learned to be contented through Jesus, through him who will give me the strength. In Christ, he says, we can learn to replace discontentment. We can replace it with joy. Now, the Bible says there's a difference between happiness and joy. A happiness is external. Joy is internal. Happiness is based on circumstances. And when they change, you're not happy anymore. Joy is based on Christ. Okay, happiness just simply, if times are good, you're high. If times are not so good, you're feeling low. Uh, they go up and down uh, based on your circumstances. And when they change, you're, you're not happy anymore. But joy is based on Christ regardless of the circumstances. Happiness is based on chance, your external circumstances. It's like being a thermometer. What does a thermometer do? A thermometer, if it's warm in the room, it goes up. If it's cold in the room, it goes down. If it's hot outside, it goes up. If it's cold outside, it goes down. It simply adjusts based on its environment. That's the way happiness is. If things are going well in your life, if you, your grades are going well at school, you got good friendships, uh, relationships are good, you got a boyfriend, you got a girlfriend, whatever the circumstances are, things are going well, uh, you, you are feeling happy. But if you break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend, if you're getting bad grades in school, if you're having trouble with your parents, if you, things are not going so well in your life, you're not doing well in sports, then all of a sudden you go down and your happiness is based on chance. It's based on your external circumstances. However, joy is based on your choice. You choose your perspective. And you can choose to be joyful with the help of Christ. And it's not like a thermometer. It's like a thermostat. What does the thermostat do? You set the temperature in the room. You say it's going to be this temperature, and then you adjust to that temperature. And you know what happens with joy? It's contagious with other people. Other people catch the joy from you. And so just like a thermostat, not only do you set the certain temperature yourself, you make a choice to set it at a certain temperature, but the whole room begins to warm up or to cool off with you because it bends to you because joy is contagious. Now, as you look at the three killjoys there in your study outline, uh, these killjoys, they can get you any time. Uh, any time during the year, you can face these killjoys. But particularly, I believe, they're a struggle uh, during the Christmas season. Um, one is comparison. Now, I don't believe that comparison, it's not so much uh, what we can afford uh, to, to give each other. I mean, that might be a little bit of it that, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm comparing what I'm financially able to give to my children compared to what somebody else is able to give to their children. I, that, that might be a little bit. I don't think it's the major problem that we face, but it is, it can still be there. I mean, I'll admit to you, every time I see a Lexus commercial, I think to myself, I am not that much of a husband. 
Unless Kimberly has a Lexus in the front yard, okay, in the driveway, with a big red bow on it when she comes out on Christmas morning. I'm just kind of a lesser of a husband. And so I have to admit, I look at that Lexus uh, commercial, I say, oh boy, you know, what if Kimberly were married to somebody that could afford to give her a Lexus in the driveway on uh, Christmas Day morning? Or sometimes I think to myself, you know, I'm not much of a husband if I can't give Kimberly a big honking rock of a jewel from Zales Jewelers, you know, and you, you see all this, you know, give her the gift that shows her you really love her. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know if the new dishwasher is going to do that. You know, and so, so, um, and so when I see Alexis commercials, maybe I have a little bit, maybe a little bit of that's going on. But you know, I think more of what we struggle with the Christmas season, it's more a comparison of our lives. Okay, how does my life compare to someone else's life? Or how does my family compare to somebody else's family? How, how do, uh, what I'm doing in my life, how does that compare uh, to, to somebody else? How, how does my life look Uh, compared to somebody else's life. And here's the thing that just robs us of so much joy in our lives. We always have a tendency to compare the best moments of everyone else's life with the reality of my life. We compare the best moments, what somebody looks like at their best, with what I know my life to be like at its worst. We, We say, look what they're doing. And we always compare the coolest thing that they're doing with the least cool thing uh, that, that we're doing. Now, take a moment and just kind of look around at the people in your vicinity, okay? Look around. Don't do it for very long or it's creepy, okay? But just, I know it's uncomfortable. It's, it's kind of weird. But just look around for a moment. And here's what we tend to do when we walk in, into church. We tend to think everybody looks like they got it going on. Everybody looks like they are so perfect. You come to church and you just look around and, oh man, the marriages are all perfect and all the children are perfect and all the parents are perfect and all the families are perfect except for mine. And we compare their outsides to our inside. And let me just assure you, I've been a pastor for 35 years and one of the things I've discovered is that everybody's got something they're struggling with. Everybody's got something. You give somebody a half an hour, an hour in my office in privacy, and they will pour out their hearts. And I'm always, I'm always you know, amazed at the families I thought or the person I thought that had the, the best life possible. From the outside, the most together life possible. They are often the ones that have deep brokenness uh, within their life. Everybody has something. Everybody's got something that's broken their heart. Everybody's got something that's disappointed them. Everybody's got something they're afraid of. Everybody's got something they lay awake in the middle of the life, night worrying about. Everybody's got some regret from the past. Everybody's got some situation in their life they wish was different. Everybody has, has got something. And so know that you are not alone. You are in a company of broken people. That's what we are. We are a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And everybody's got something. And yet what Satan will tempt you to do is to compare everybody else's best moments with the reality of your worst moments. Uh, Everybody else's outside with what you know to be true within your inside. And on the other hand, too, don't think that you're not making an impact. You look around and you're like, oh, everybody else has got, God's got such a cool plan for their life. Everybody else has got this life that God has mapped out that's so awesome compared to my life. And let me just tell you, God made you exactly the way he made you. Every person is a combination of 10 strengths and 10 weaknesses. And we've all got different combinations. And we tend to compare our weaknesses 
weaknesses, to somebody else's strengths. But God made you exactly the way you are with those strengths and those weaknesses in perfect combination. There's never been another you in like, like you in the history of the universe. There's nobody like you. You are utterly unique. You're the only one that can fulfill that particular role in God's master plan for the human race in all of the universe, in all of history. You're the only one that can play that note in God's orchestra. You're the only one that can write that line in God's play or speak that word in God's play. You're the only one that can do that particular thing that God needs done in order to fulfill his master plan for the universe, for humanity. You are utterly unique. Nobody can beat you at being you. Nobody can beat you at being you. Don't you dare compare yourself and get discouraged because somebody's life seems better than yours. Think to yourself, nobody can beat me at being me. And God made you exactly the way you are and placed you in exactly the situation you're at. And don't get me wrong, if you can improve certain things, go ahead and do it. But if it's out of your control, know that God can work in and through every circumstance and he can fulfill his plan for your life and in the process fulfill his plan, his master plan for the universe, for all of the, the human race. So comparison is something that we struggle with anytime, but particularly at Christmas. And then number two is idealism. We try to create the perfect Christmas that looks like a Norman Rockwell painting. Let me ask you, how many of you, that's Christmas, okay? I mean, the kids are all perfect, and the parents are perfect, and the gifts are wrapped perfectly, and even the dog is, is doing the, you know, not jumping too much, but just enough, and, and everybody looks so happy, and it's all perfect. Look how well-rested they look. Look how well-rested they look. Look at the lack of stress on their faces, Okay. How many of you, that's not quite the Christmas you experience, you know? And that's the thing we have in our minds. We live under the burden of our own expectations. And then number three is covetousness. Covetousness is I want that life. I don't want the life God gave me. I want that life. Now, this has been a problem for like ever. Uh, 3,500 years ago, it's the 10th of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet Thy neighbor's wife or his oxen or his, you know, his job or his or her um, spouse or covet anything about their lives. And we've been struggling with this as a human race for 3,500 years plus. A covetousness and idealism and comparison. I want that life, that person's life, rather than the life that I'm living. Now, you take all three of these things, and people have struggled with them from the beginning of time. But now, however, you take social media and it puts these three things on steroids. You take comparison that everybody struggled with. Moses struggled with comparison. You put it on social media and you put it comparison on steroids. You take idealism. Idealism is something people have always struggled with. But you put it on social media and it's on steroids. Covetousness is something they struggled with 1500 B.C. and beyond. And you put that on uh, social media, now you put it on steroids. That's where we put our lives and our family on display. And we always compare somebody else's best with what we know to be uh, the reality of our life. Now let's spend the remainder of our time talking about the secret of joy this Christmas. Our perspective is a choice. And the first one is kind of like a cliche, and I hesitate to put it in there. But it's such a powerful principle. It's at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the teaching of Jesus. Focus on giving rather than receiving. 
And it's not just a cliche. It is a powerful uh, principle. That is, look for somebody during the Christmas season that has less of something than you do and focus on meeting their needs in that area. If you're lonely, find somebody who's lonelier than you and reach out to that person and be a friend. If you're hurting, find somebody who's hurting more than you are and reach out to them uh, and, and minister to their needs. And you'll find that God replaces our discontentment with joy. Uh, if you don't have much this Christmas, look for somebody who has even less than you do and, and give them something. And you'll find that supernaturally, God will replace our discontentment with his joy. Great, great picture of this. 109 AD. There's a Roman aqueduct built by the Romans uh, in Spain. And it um, provided water, took water from the mountains and uh, provided it down to the cities that were in the valleys there in Spain. And this aqueduct, the Romans were just amazing builders. This thing served 60 generations. It was functional, providing water from up in the mountains down to the people in the valley for 1,800 years. Until around the year 1900, the people of that area determined that they shouldn't use it anymore. Instead, they should make it into a museum piece. It should be an historical site. And so they stopped running water through it, used more modern piping to get their water from the mountains down to where they were, and let that just be. They didn't want to use it anymore, uh, didn't want to risk using it anymore, so they just let it sit there without any water running through it in order to be a museum and in order to be an historical site. And because it no longer had cold water running through it, it baked in the hot Spanish sun and eventually the mortar began to crumble and it fell apart. And that is exactly a picture of our lives. We are not to be a museum for saints. We're to be a hospital for sinners. We're not supposed to be pulling on airs, looking as good as we can in front of other people. Uh, instead, we are to be involved in being a hospital for sinners. The cold water, the living water of Jesus Christ, flowing from above, from the mountains, from God, through us to other people. Blessed to be a blessing. We're not to be a reservoir. We're to be a river where God blesses us. It flows through us, and now we bless other people. And when we do that, God takes our discontentment. He lifts it off of us and replaces it with joy. The next quote there is an awesome one by Eugene Peterson. He says, Centering the life in the insatiable demands of the ego is the sure path to doom. Life confined to the self is a prison, a joy-killing, neurosis-producing, disease-fomenting prison. Jesus said in Acts 20, 35, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now this is a fascinating verse. Because it's one of the few, if any, in the Scripture that is not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, in the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus. But instead, it was so common among the early church, knowing that Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive, that Paul just, just quotes it, because everybody knew Jesus said it all the time, even though nobody ever wrote it down in the first four Gospels, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Peter writes, learn. If you have a pencil or a pen, circle that little word, Learn. Learn to put aside your own desires so that you will become patient and godly. This will make possible the next step, which is for you to enjoy other people and to like them, and finally you will grow to love them deeply. The second thing is to focus on healing rather than hurting. Uh, if we don't acknowledge our discontentment and deal with it, it's going to just grow over time. 
And this is where the church is such an awesome place where we can be real with each other. Uh, particularly in our small groups, in our rooted groups, in our life groups, and in high school small groups, and other small groups throughout the church. This is where we can take the mask off. This is where we don't have to be a museum piece anymore, uh, putting our best foot forward, but instead we can open up and be real um, with each other. And when we do that, authenticity is the antidote to this feeling of discontentment that comes from everybody trying to put on uh, a happy face And instead, in the reality of that, it is the antidote to be authentic with each other, and then we find that we are better together, another one of our core principles, and then we can replace discontentment with joy. I'm part of a pastor's group, a mentor group of pastors that I mentor. And, you know, pastors many times feel like they're the only one struggling in that particular area within their church, and they're the only one that has that challenge or this challenge. And one of the best things, you know, in my mentor group, I used to try to bring in great, you know, sermons to listen to or books for us to study. And all the guys in my mentor group, all they ever want to do is say, I'm struggling with this within my church, and have a couple other people say, me too. That's all they want to hear. You're struggling with that? Me too. That's all parents want when they're in a small group with other young parents. They just want to hear, my child does that, your child does that, mine too. And they, they just need to hear that from each other. And, and when we get real with each other, that's, that's when it begins to lift this discontentment and this disconnect between our upfront lives, our Facebook lives, and the real life uh, that we're actually um, living And I want to encourage you in 2017, maybe start it during the holidays, but maybe after the holidays, make it a priority to connect with a life group or a rooted group come 2017. You know, the thing I hear from people in rooted group, and I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody say this, they'll say something like, man, I didn't like groups, didn't want to be a part of a group. Usually it's husbands saying my wife dragged me to the group or something like that, or a friend pressured me to go to the group. And they'll say this, you know what? I didn't want to say a thing. And I was just going to sit there quiet. But as people began to share, it became contagious. And I shared things about my life I'd never shared with anybody. And this amazing how discontentment lifted off of my life and it was replaced by God's joy. And I just want to encourage you, if you ever go to a rooted group, nobody's going to take you the first night and stick you in the middle, and you're in the middle of a circle, and they're going to say, now tell us all your dirt, okay? Nobody's going to do that. They do that the second night, not the first night. But no, they don't do that. They don't do that at all. As a matter of fact, you don't have to say a thing. You go to a rooted group, you don't have to say a thing for 10 weeks. But here's what will happen. I hear this all the time. You don't have to say a thing, but you will want to as you see other people being vulnerable and open and authentic about their lives. You'll want to join in and share as well. And when you do, there will be this joy that will happen uh, within your life. Paul writes in Colossians 3 verse 13, Be gentle and ready to forgive. Never hold grudges. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others as well. And then thirdly, focus on God's power rather than on my problems. And you've heard me say this before, but this is why it is awesome that you are here this morning. Because it's when you worship and when you study God's word that that God seems bigger and our problems seem smaller by comparison. You know, when we walked in here, our problems seemed this big, and God seemed small by comparison. But you know what happens when you you come to worship? You get in here, you begin to sing the songs, you begin to pray, you begin to look into God's Word, and all of a sudden, God seems bigger, and by comparison, our problems seem smaller. 
And that's why you are my heroes. Here you are on the first, you know, Sunday of Advent. There are so many things you could have done. You, you as Southern Californians, you braved the Antarctic cold out there, okay. And you braved the monsoon rains that, that were pouring down. And it's a holiday weekend, okay? It's a holiday weekend. It's Thanksgiving weekend. You could be shopping right now. You could be watching the Rams game uh, right now. You could be doing so many other things. But you know what you did? You made a choice to be in, in God's house today, to worship him, to study his word. And that is a powerful thing that we tend to neglect even during the, the Christmas season. We tend to get, it's ironic, we get so busy celebrating the birth of Jesus that we don't spend time with Jesus. It's like a story, supposedly it's a true story, and, and don't feel bad, I'll tell you the end, no baby gets hurt in this story, okay, so you just can relax. But supposedly a true story where there was this a wealthy family and they had opened up their home to celebrate the birth of their new baby, and, and everybody, as they came into this palatial mansion, they took their coats off. It was a winter environment. And they take them in and put them on a bed in, in one of the guest rooms. And everybody come in. They take it, put it on the bed, take it, put it on the bed. And when it came time to honor the newborn baby, they couldn't find the baby until there was the baby underneath all the coats. And no baby was harmed. Okay, I'll say that right again. Baby was fine. But isn't that just like Christmas? We have so many parties, and we're doing so much stuff, and we're so involved, and we're so busy that we don't spend time to connect with the Jesus that's at the center of it all. And so we want to focus on God's power rather than on, on, on my problems. Spend time in worship. Spend time in God's Word. Spend time with other believers being real and, and authentic, and God will replace the discontentment that is often a character trait of this season. He'll replace it with joy. Uh, Psalm 6, verse, uh, 62, verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him. This Christmas season, what is it that's breaking your heart? What is, it, what is it that's hard in your life? Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. Uh, Psalm 56, verse 3, when I am afraid, what are you afraid of this Christmas season? What's the thing you're afraid of? I put my trust in you. And then Philippians 4, verse 4, Paul says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Where did he write those words from? He wrote them from prison. And yet 16 times in the little four-chapter book of Philippians, he uses the word joy even though he wrote these words from jail. And you know that Paul wrote most of the New Testament uh, from prison. Now, let me just talk about that for just a moment as we begin to wrap things up. Think about that for a moment. Prison life would be hard for anybody, but can you imagine what it was like for Paul? I mean, this guy was an activist. He was like one of the most energetic people in all of human history. I mean, he was dynamic, and he was stuck in prison. And can you imagine how he questioned God and said, God, I could reach so many more people for Christ if I wasn't in prison. God, I could plant new churches around the Mediterranean and the Roman Empire if I wasn't in prison. God, I could do so much for you. I could preach so many sermons if I wasn't in prison. God, why have you stuck me in prison? Well, you know what he did while I was in prison? He wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. Now, 2,000 years later, as believers, we look back over what was more valuable to the explosive growth of Christianity, the biggest movement in world history. 
Was it him reaching a few more people for Christ, even though that would have been wonderful? Was it him planting a couple more churches, even though that would have been wonderful? No, far more impactful for eternity was those books of the Bible, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Way more impactful was those letters that he wrote. And so you see, we have a, a glimpse of God's perspective. Paul is in prison saying, get me out of here. And God's saying, you could be so much useful, more useful right where you are. Now let me ask you a question. What's the prison for you? Okay, what's the prison for you? You think, what's the one thing? I want you to think of it right now. What's the one thing in your life that you think, if that were different, my life would be so much better? Or you can't even spiritualize it and say, I could be so much more effective for God if it wasn't for that one thing. I'm thinking of something right now. What, what are you thinking of, okay? And think of that thing. God, if I wasn't stuck in this relationship, my life would be so much better and I could be so much more effective for you. God, if I wasn't stuck in this job, and don't get me wrong, if you can change certain things in your life, go ahead and do that. But if it's outside of your power and, and you're imprisoned by it, say, God, if, if I weren't stuck in this job, I could do so much more for you. Uh, Lord, if I didn't have this particular disability or if I didn't have this particular weakness in my life or if I, if I wasn't stuck in this relationship or whatever, God, I, my life would be so much better. I could be so much more effective for you. And could it be that in your life, like it was in Paul's, the very thing that you think is a prison is actually a magnifier for God to work through you to impact eternity? It could very well be that the thing that we wish we were most out of in our lives could be the very thing that when we get to heaven, like Paul, we will stand. And Paul will stand by Jesus and say, thank you for that prison. Because it was in that prison that literally I changed the world for Christ. And it could be in our prison that we will stand next to Christ and say, thank you for that thing that was the actual thing that you used for my benefit, even though I just couldn't see it. Uh, at, at the time. Now, the whole key to this as we enter into the Advent season is to know that we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no better way to start to launch Christmas, the first Advent Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, than to make sure that He's the Lord and Savior of our lives. Would everybody pull out in the book rack in front of them this thing that says resource? Would everybody do that across the worship center? And I want to just take you through the three steps to being a follower of Jesus. Number one, A, you admit your condition before God. All of us have sinned. We've done wrong things. And we fall short of the perfect standards of God, the glory of God. B, we believe that Jesus came 2,000 years ago as God's only solution to that condition. The result of our sin is spiritual and physical death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then see, we choose to follow Christ as our Savior and Lord. He is that bridge that bridges the cross of Jesus, bridges the chasm between an unholy me and a holy God. Jesus said, I tell you, whoever hears my word, which you're doing right now, and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and will not be judged. But they have crossed over from death to life. And there's no better way to launch into the Christmas season than to know that you have opened up your heart to Jesus to receive him as your Savior and as your Lord. That's why he came 2,000 years ago. He came for moments just like this. And so I invite you to pray silently as I pray out loud. 
Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, the first Sunday of Advent, 2016, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, we've got a Christmas gift for you. Um, As you leave out in the lobby at the Connect Center, there's a packet that says a gift for you. Is that right, Pastor Tomiko? Connect Center. Thank you. You're teaching me the new lingo. The Connect Center right out in the lobby, it's a packet of things that will help you in your walk with Jesus. Feel no pressure, no obligation. Just pick one of these up as you leave. If you'd like to talk to somebody, there'll be somebody there that would love to talk with you. If that in any way would be an encouragement to you, but not necessary. If you just want to pick this up and leave, feel very free to do that. Would love to give you as a gift from our church to you as you start this new Advent season with a new relationship uh, with Jesus. Um, Let's stand together for our benediction. And... uh, As we stand, a couple of things. Our prayer room is open, and so our prayer partners and our prayer team is there. If you'd like prayer for anything, it's right through this door on the main floor to my left, to your right, right through there. Boy, they'd love to pray with and for you if in any way uh, that would be an encouragement to you. Just a reminder that our congregational meeting is Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. And uh, this is just a great time. You can catch a hold of the budgets out in the lobby. There's also on the back of your program, you'll see an overview of this year's budget, as well as the leadership team that's being nominated. And so, um, you know, it's not the mo- maybe the most exciting meeting, but it is a very important meeting as we kind of say, okay, God, how do you want us to allocate our resources uh, during 2017 to reach the most number of people for Christ? And so we'd love to see you Tuesday night at uh, 7 o'clock. Now, let me give you a, a benediction and a blessing as we enter into the Christmas season together. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.